Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We're rolling. Whenever you're ready. All right, we're rolling. Okay, we're going to interject another song here, which is our custom porch talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've subjected everybody to probably way more words that are not melodies than ever ought to be spoke by me. But uh, this song I wrote in a dream. I wrote it all in a dream, every part of it. And uh, I woke up, and uh, when I wake up and I got one, I grab a piece of paper and pen, and I write it down, and, you know, maybe I'll grab a shower and, 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 and try to recall more of it, and... and uh, I'll drink some coffee and I'll refine it and these sort of things. But uh, uh, Johnny Cash came to me in a dream, if you want to call it that. We didn't actually speak to one another in the dream, but I was in one of his one of his rehearsal sessions. He and June had come in, and uh, uh, he was getting ready to do an album. And uh, his backup singers came in, and uh, the back. The backup singers had had written a song the night before for Johnny's album, and I remember thinking inside of the dream, I was like, "Oh, come on now, you you don't just go write Johnny Cash's songs for his next album, you know?" And uh, they were talking among themselves like, "This one's going to be on it. We're going to do this one," and they broke into this harmony and uh, sang it, you know, for Johnny. Uh-huh. And uh, Johnny's like, "Yeah, that's going to be on there." And uh, and I remember Johnny like looked at me and he like looking for, I don't know, they wouldn't look no affirmation or nothing, but. Uh, Kind of looked at me like, yeah, this is a good one. And uh, I never got to speak to Johnny Cash, but I got to see Johnny Cash, and I was really close to Johnny Cash in geography the night at the show only. And I got to see him once, and uh, it was it was great. And uh, so, you know, did he? Did Johnny really visit me in a dream for the, give me this song? Um, my subconscious certainly visited me. And something happened, and I recognized it, and uh, and I wrote it, and uh, it probably doesn't sound like a Johnny Cash song. And in my dream, it's it's got very African overtones and, and like uh, lots of harmonies and drums and, and traditional African instruments, things mm-hmm. like this. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, let's let's do this one. day the night time is coming and every day has the middle of the night and somewhere the lions are running and somebody's making ready for the fight every day has the middle of the night Every night has the middle of the day And sometimes the wind blows out the rain Every moment steals away a memory Every brush stroke 
covers up a stain Every night has a middle of the day Somewhere there's coffee and a brewer And somewhere whiskey tries to kill some pain And in these moments the stillness is heavy But the silence never will be blamed Every day has a middle of the night Every day somebody wants you Even if at night, well, you're sleeping all alone Every night you may lose a little slumber Even when the day ain't done nothing wrong Every night has the middle of the day Every day the night time is coming And every day has a middle of the night And somewhere lions are running And somebody's making ready for the fight Every day has a middle of the night Every day has a middle of the night Every day has a middle of the night So, there's that one. I wrote that about a week ago. I guess. I guess I wrote it. I don't write them. I honestly don't. I mean, some maybe some I write. Uh, I capture them. I catch them. I try to catch songs. I don't try to write them. Hey, I've heard it. I've heard it put this way: is um, you know, a song is like uh, putting lightning in a a bottle. That like, you know, even if it was to come through a dream or just a moment in time or whatever that looks like is. You need to stop what you're doing right then, even if it means pulling over on the side of the road to capture that That's idea. Right. That's I, 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 I understand that intimately. Yeah. And uh, that's why I guess I'm always writing. I don't even just I, I write more than songs. I, I write, write, you know. I got a bunch of stuff right here. It happens to be in this pile of stuff. Uh, I write, and I got the little group. Uh, it's you know private, secret little thing on the social media. That's got, yeah. You're on it. Yeah. It's got a, just mainly it's made up of just a few a few of my friends, which is actually like seventy five of them or something. And uh, most every single one of them are musicians of some merit, or, or there's someone I respect artistically. If they're not happen to be a musician, maybe they're a writer. And uh, some days I get up, you know, a lot of days I get up at five in the morning. Uh, some days I get up earlier, some days a little later, but a lot of days I, I like to watch the day break. I like to watch it break. Oh yeah. One of your latest posts in that group. I mean that. Yeah. Straight poetry. I don't know if it's poetry, but, uh, I'm not going to read a bunch of this, but I, I, I thought, I was like, oh, maybe I'll read, uh, something that ain't too personal. I mean, it's not like it's personal because like 75 people are looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> or something, uh. 
I think I'm looking at the first one here. It's got the one about a. Oh yeah, this is the first one. I don't remember. Here's one. Oh, here's one about the fair. That's lighthearted. I wrote about the fair. <clears throat> I messed up and closed that door. I'm opening it back up. Oh yeah, go ahead and open it back up. We, you know, we cut the fans off. Yeah. Uh, Kill them fans, they say. We cut the uh, AC off, and I usually don't run the AC anyway. I'm, I'm just not an ACer. Um, I like to sweat it out. There you I, go. I, I like to know I can handle it. This, and it's probably like when I was hiking. I, I like I like to know what I'm capable of. You know, we got a hurricane coming right now. Right. right. It, it it should be uh be with us tonight, right? Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe it'll blow the other way. Maybe yeah. the wind will blow out the rain. Who knows? Yeah. And anyway, uh, back to uh, the fair is many. The fair is many things to many different people. For me, NCF is a crucible. It's a blank page that exists between old law and new law. It's a challenge and a gift. It's a trip to a mysterious city and a funhouse mirror. It's a yearly evaluation of my entire life, Dewey Cox. The season, this season was particularly profound. <clears throat> it's something that one survives. Some years, it's a roll-down window that I look out. And others, like this one, it's an immersive gauntlet of change. Those moving targets tend to line up with illumination as new targets appear each morning against the rising light. I'm a lifer, you see, indoctrinated in red clay and lemonade. This year I set up my chairs. This year I gave in to the rain, the cake, and the romance. This year I cashed my ticket in and I rode. I was a host and a pilgrim. I was vanquished and victorious. I drank the wine and waded into the river. I learned things about myself that I never knew and I faced new questions that still need answers. My ghost appeared and visited me one by one. I bought the shirt this time and tended the grill fire. I made new friends and drew closer to old ones. I spent the night in the den and heard the voice call my name in the morning. I was overjoyed at the end, and then I wept for the ending. I resisted combat and embraced camaraderie. I learned many things and shed irreverent lessons. Now the real challenge lies before me, the wake, the continuing. Real life always makes its way back around the track and finds its way into my back pocket. But I'm a better man for the three-quarter mile run. Today is a day of decision. Today I'm forced to choose my fate. I hope I choose wisely because I gave a great deal in preparation for the pull. That's great. And uh, just personal testimony from my short experience of being at the fair uh you were very much a host and very much uh one uh to partake of what was going on oh if we it's, don't and that was within a that was in a confine of a couple of hours that you and i got to spend. yeah i mean had imagine we, the you two got weeks to spend, spend even a night with me you know more would have happened oh yeah maybe maybe not who knows? Like I said, sometimes it's a roll down window, and other times uh, you're you're riding. You know, just just with that, and we're going to go back to Oxford just for a second because I want to talk about your friend John. Um, but oh yeah, of uh, you know, like thinking about that just snapshot of history, like with the Shelby County Fair and what you shared, is when I think about life, and we were talking about time and like 
I'm into this, talking about it being something that's not linear, but more circular. And that's an aboriginal philosophy, by the way. Yeah. Just to interject. Now, please yeah. continue with, is, your, with your own interview. <laughs> yeah. Is uh, when I look back on and thinking of my life as a pirate ship and the ragged banners and the flags that I've flown, I've rarely taken a flag down. They're just ragged. Right. Sometimes you got to demast one, though. Yeah. And, Especially uh, if it's the flag of no surrender. That's it. Buddy, there's going to be some surrender. You can count on it. Absolutely. And that's so, I mean, just. One. That's the red one, by the way. Just so. Yeah. Yeah, by the way. Uh, but, I mean, just going through, like, with what you shared, and then, like, I was there, and so I personally can testify to uh, the idea of that. And I, I'm just thinking about all these different festivals and all these things I was able to take part of and what it meant. And I was like, you, you did a great synapse on what the experience captures. Yeah, and, you know, the fair, from, I mean, I've been there since you grew I was up a, in it, right? a baby. You know, we got a cabin. Uh, my great-granddaddy built it in 1966, and uh, I'm fortunate enough to still be flying that flag on it. And, uh, I so meant like the first time I played live with the band was on a cabin porch <laughs> and that was my first band. And as a matter of fact, the only way I got in the band was now before the fair ever happens. And if there's a build up to it in the summer, because the fairgrounds are open and people that have cabins are out there working on them and they're staying in them and stuff. And there's no fair going on. But if, if you know somebody and you happen to be out there, you know, you may be going around cabin to cabin like in the summertime when there's no fair and, mm-hmm. and enjoying cooking and camaraderie and family and fellowship and things like that. So one night, I, you know, I was, uh, well, I was still, uh, I'm dating this by this black eye that I remember I got because there's a <laughs> photograph of me after this one particular night and I've been punched in the eye and, uh, it's weird how you date things. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely but uh, i didn't get a black eye at the fair um ever as a matter of fact that's not a it's not a thing for that for me but uh never was well okay well i said something about people lying earlier <laughs> never at the fair though let me tell you what they ain't no good you don't mess around at the fair that's that's sacred but uh i was out there walking around i was going from one cabin to another cabin which was mine and i had a guitar in my hand and i heard some people playing on a cabin porch Mm -hmm. and it was sounding sweet so uh i walked up and i saw these two what i would call you know i was i was every bit of 18 19 19 probably walked up on the cabin porch and there these two kids you know 15 16 they're kids now to a 19 year old Mm -hmm. and they were just ripping it on guitars well, I just popped mine open and I sat down. And when they did a break in the music, I broke into a Garth Brooks song. Mm-hmm. And uh, they ripped right into it with me. And then appearing in the doorway was someone I knew who had who was my drum captain from high school who had taught me mostly everything I knew about being a leader and, uh, and snare drum and... and playing six eight and you know i mean and there he was i was like hey you know scott scott walker one of the finest drummers that has ever walked the face of the earth by the way i'm talking about immaculate Mm -hmm. as a percussionist this guy like 
would never play his drum solo either. He was just like humble. He didn't do solos. But you didn't know when he started playing, he, he could have, and he's very successful and happy in his own life, but he could have been a session player or a, or a band player. He could have done anything he wanted with percussion, but he chose other things mm-hmm. and became a professional, a family man, a successful person in many ways. And uh, I've lost track with him, but I think he still also plays whenever he wants to. So there he was. And uh, he's now in the doorway, and we're all playing. And somehow, somebody says, maybe it was Scott. It probably was, because he led that band. I was just a piece of it. We need to start a band and play at my cabin at the fair. And uh, I said, well, we could meet at my cabin and practice. Okay. Well, we picked a weeknight, and in the weeknight, now nobody's out there pretty much during the summer. It's just dead. Nothing. Right. We go to my cabin, get up in that little bottom room, and uh, then this guy shows up named Paul Hansis, the bass player, who I found out later was actually a piano player. But let me tell you what, he was an immaculate bass player with perfect everything. And now you got these two kids who I'm still dear friends with right now. This moment, I talked to both of them today. And uh, who are now uh, monster guitar players. Monsters in their own right. And uh, and you got me. And I mean, I honestly, at that point, was like, I'm the weakest link here. Yeah. And I was I was the vocalist. I wasn't even, I didn't, I wasn't even playing guitar at this point. Yeah. I was just singing. They were so good that I didn't take mine out of the case. And this went on for a year or so before I was I was confident enough to to bring an acoustic to practice one day and they're like, You gonna play? I was like, Yeah and they knew I'd banged around on it, everything. I was like, Yeah, I think I think I wanna play. And uh the first song I ever played with our band was uh Hotel California, <laughs> which it's not exactly an easy song to play uh, right. rhythm yeah. or lead. And I am tell you what, I didn't play the lead part. That was Jamie. And he played it to perfection. Every nuance of every note. That was we so we had cover songs. Mm-hmm. And we rehearsed at my cabin. And then at the fair that year, which was whatever, um, we went on Scott's porch. And we were just all young and had a band. It was my first time. It was their first time to do a popular music show. And uh, he had a corner cabin. And uh, we get up there. And the first song that we played, and we had we'd learned a whole lot of songs that were on the radio at the time. Mm-hmm. And the first song we played was Brand New Man, I think by Brooks and Dunn. I'm a brand new yeah. man. I saw the light. I've been baptized by the fire in your touch and the flame in your eye. Born to love again, I'm a brand new man. Well, the whole town's talking about that line I'm walking. You know, and we broke it. And, and, and now we had rehearsed. I'm talking about we were serious. Mm-hmm. We did not mess around. We were we were putting it in there, mm-hmm. as they say. We put it in there. That's right. And before I knew it, there were so many people. You couldn't count them. There was a C. It looked like the grandstand, which is where you go at the fair to see 500 to 1,000 people. Mm-hmm. Now, there were not 500 to 1,000 people. There might have been 500. Oh, and by the way, there's nobody was making no money. You know, whatever. We're doing it. We're just doing it. And we played... And who knew, but our set list was, like, dynamic, as, as far as cover bands go. And, uh, I mean, we played, I didn't, we didn't know any better than to not play Freebird. We didn't know that, that cool, quote, cool bands didn't play Freebird. We had no clue. 
So we played That's it. That's what people want to hear, right? Well, who knows? But I know that we as young kids played it, played the hair off of it. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, and, and did it like it, like our lives depended on it. We played Sweet Home Alabama. We played, oh, I, oh my gosh, you name it. And uh, it, it was Murrayville. The, the, the hit list. Yeah, every one of them. And one after another. And, uh, at some point in the night, someone gets a hat, literal a literal hat. Now, you just say they're going to pass the hat, and it's a tip jar. No, it was a hat. And the hat went around the crowd. Mm-hmm. And the hat came all the way back to the stage. And the hat was jam, slam, full of fives and tens and twenties and ones. And there was even a $100 bill in there. It was flowing over, I think... You know, there was six or seven hundred dollars in there, from one passing of one hat. Well, that's the, that's the thing about it, right? One passing of one hat. Yeah, literal hat. It's like thank you, Brandon Heflin. I saw him. He put the first money in. I still got that dollar, buddy. <laughs> Just telling you. That's dope. I mean, think about that though. Like with the nature of bands, especially maybe just here in the South, is like if you're willing to play that free bird or Sweet Home Alabama. Um, the likelihood of you returning to play there and being like there is incredibly high because of, I think, like, culture in and of itself is, um, what's the best word? Writing is, think about this, is uh, when's the, name a brand new Christmas song that was wrote last year. We still sing Christmas songs from the 60s. We do. Like, culture has staggered. Culture is dying. And so, like, when we... And there's a reason why this had filled up. It's like, these people were willing to pay top dollar for something that they knew. And I was like, there is so much out there. We booked that night. Yeah. After that show. We booked a show off of that. Imagine that, right? And I had no clue, like... How, to, how much to charge? Who knew? I mean, right at that time, this was uh, and this was before passion I'd, was high. This is before I'd made the grand. I don't, but but uh, we booked a uh, hog cooking, yeah, in Alabama, and uh, and they probably ate it up. We charged five hundred dollars. We could have charged fifteen hundred. Yeah, it didn't matter. But it did, that we don't care. I mean, I'm glad we didn't charge you fifteen hundred, banker. You know, I don't know what's going on with banker. I don't. He might not be with us anymore. I don't know. But we charged five hundred bucks. But here's but at that show we played at the hog cooking. See, we got done at midnight. Yeah. And the host came around and says, Will you play another hour for another hundred? Oh yeah, yeah, buddy. And what I didn't know was that he was going to pay another hundred dollars as long as we would play another hour. And I think it was on over at three or four in the morning, uh, when we'd done repeated our list about twice and he comes back <laughs> and says, Will you play for another hour? And it was finally Scott, who was the oldest dude. He was our band leader. Yeah. And he, the voice of reason's like, no, 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 no. We've got to stop now. Okay. We've made it $900, whatever, you know, we're stopping now. And, uh, oh my God. Also, we had no clue. We had like every piece of PA the world had ever seen. It took us hours to set the PA up. And then the lights with all the gels on them. Like we had borrowed it from this, uh, used to be, or still famous DJ who did DJ shows, and we had truck loads full of monitors and cables and fronts and mics and stands, and it took hours and hours to assemble 
Who knows? We, you know, I, I, this is my philosophy. You don't need all that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a mono. Like you bring, bring a couple of twelves. Uh, better yet, you know, I say bring a, bring a fifteen for the bottom. For the sub. Bring a ten for the top. Sit it on top of it. Bring a couple of tens for the monitors and power it up with just enough power to get you where you want to be. An SM58 or two, and you are finished. That's it. And that is, and, and as far as the uh, electric guitars go, just use the amplifiers. Like just run, just run them for their purpose. You don't have to. You know what? If you, if you start lining in and miking your electric guitars, you are now mixing those. That's just it. And you are now, and every time you do that, you add another piece to the puzzle, and you literally have to have someone at the soundboard twisting every knob on every song. And when you get dialed in on your mono, you know. Uh, situation uh everybody knows what they're doing and of course the problem with that is every guitar player in the world will have his own 10 after the third song and that means the drummer's going to play louder and the drummer plays louder everybody will turn up and that means eventually after the middle of the first set you cannot hear the vocals anymore don't do that you know everybody understand where uh what what the volume is supposed to be and stick with it and let your drummer be the the one that controls the your, your drummer is going to control it. Let right. let the let a good percussionist set the volume and everybody else dial around them and keep those mics because I can't tell how many times people walk up and they go, you can't hear the vocals. Well, you ain't never going to hear them even on ten because they won't compete with that you know big thing happening. And the, the, the talk about a tangent. It's it's almost like I got upset right there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I mean that's great, and I mean, I, you know, props to Philip and Matt. Is uh, man, I'm happy to be playing with them in the groove, Johnson. And uh, I wouldn't have agreed, I wouldn't have agreed to it. Uh, it Philip asked if I'd be interested in playing, yeah, absolutely. I'd play with y'all. I, I wanted to be in a band, and I don't give a damn about being the front man, but like, I do give a damn about musicianship and doing things right. And I've seen those guys live, um, and I have a lot of respect for what they do, absolutely. And I don't know if there's anyone else that I would have played with. Like if any, like if any other band, like would have asked in the area, I probably would have immediately said no. And it's just for those reasons that you said. It's like they're they're old enough, they're mature enough, they've been, they've got enough skin in the game, and yeah. I want to make music with them. Louder, and I don't want to play music. Louder with, is not better. I want to make music. No, louder is not better. That is a thing that if any young musicians out there, you can laugh, whatever you want. Cutting it up ain't cool. I don't care. You ain't ever going to hit that lick any better than you ever going to hit it before just because you go to 11. And, uh, and uh, you know, that's it. The greatest the greatest shows of all time have limited PA and even maybe even no PA. Mm-hmm. The first I used to do shows out here, many, many shows out here. The first show I ever had was no PA and it's deep down in those woods back there. I'd built myself a platform. It's the first time I'd moved out of my home, my mom and daddy's house. And there ain't nothing down here but nothing but woods and jungle. And I'd cut me a little place out and built a little platform and I had a show and the show was uh all acoustic and mm-hmm. uh, I invited twenty or thirty people and they came and they camped. And the only reason I did it was uh my dog Blue had passed away while I was on a canoe trip. I took a canoe into Canada. I wasn't supposed to be in Canada, but we went. Don't tell nobody. I didn't break no laws that you know about. And uh, 
Anyway, we had a permit. It's good. It's okay. We had a permit for our side. <laughs> but uh, anyway, and my dog had passed. I'm, I'm sad talking about it now. His name was Blue, and he was my rider. And uh, I did a tribute show and invited people that knew Blue. And I had his ashes. Still got his ashes right over there with text. But uh, that show, a lot of the people gathered around the stage and talked. That's what people do. Right. Sometimes they don't listen and they talk. And the PA gets you over them so you don't notice. But I noticed that night. So the next time I had a show, I drew a like a ring around the stage. And I handed out flyers before the show. And I said, please respect the musicians. We don't have a PA. If you want to talk, step outside the ring. Mm-hmm. And people respected it. And then everybody wanted to listen, brought their lawn chairs in the ring. And everybody wanted to talk, stepped out. Mm-hmm. And uh, we cooked a ham. And uh, there was this uh, guy that cooked the ham on the third show was an expatriate named Christopher Columbus. From where? He was or, from... Or what was he, expat? He was from... He was ex... <clears throat> he was an American expatriate who had returned here secretly. Oh. Well. And I ran into him in South Mexico on a beach. Okay. Middle of, middle of straight up, I ain't going to call the beach his name because I might want to go back there and I might want... None of y'all know where it's at. And uh, I went deep down there to this beach in South Mexico. And there was a, a, a I think he was searching for a term that's not offensive because he's a Caucasian guy, obviously. Mm-hmm. He's expat. Yeah. And, uh, I don't call him gringos. Yeah. I, I just don't, whatever. I don't, I'm surprised I said it, whatever. I don't think there's anything derogative about that. It depends on how it's said and who's said to and why. Yeah. But, uh, and he's there. And he and I became friends. And later, well, we were there while I was on the beach. And he, and, and uh, many times when I've traveled out of the country, uh, you understand that when you meet a native, they can show you things you never dreamed of. That's right. And he wasn't a native, but let me tell you, he'd been living there in exile from the United States for uh, many years. He, he owned a lot that he tried to sell me for $2,000. <laughs> uh let me tell you, I almost did it, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was like, what am I going to do with this? Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. It's like a million dollar lot in, in, uh, California for two grand. I'm like, but what am I going to do with a beautiful lot in the middle of this Mexico where I probably can't get back to, maybe I can, how does the legal part of owning land, it's a foreigner work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. I didn't do it, which is fine. I, Probably would have just been giving away two thousand dollars. <laughs> right. I can go back there anytime I want and get a hammock for a, a dollar a night and stay in it, which is what I did that time. And uh, you can buy fish right out of the boat for nothing. You can get cerveza for a very reasonable, you know. Anyway, he shows up at my farm. When I say shows up, he calls me. I'd given him my number. I'm like, if you ever get back in the United States, I got a little farm, etc. He showed up, and I got a call. He says, I'm at the train station, bus station, same place. I'm at the bus station in Meridian. Um, Can I come hang out at your farm? Can I stay at your farm? Sure, I'll come get you. So I went and got him, brought him here, and he lived here for a whole summer. And uh, he was didn't have anything. But I, I gave him a garden. He told me he was a farmer, and he was. He grew, to this day, the most beautiful watermelons that this farm has ever seen. And they were wow. they were jubilees. Gorgeous. Oh, yeah. And I grew a bunch of them. 
And he brought a whole bunch of them to the fair and gave them to all our neighbors, and they loved him. And uh, he got him a little job at another little farm around here. And uh, anyway, he cooked a ham at that show. And his name wasn't Christopher Columbus. Of course, Christo Cologne is what you would call him in Latin America. His name, which I found out after he ended up leaving my farm, he got some mail here with his actual name on it, which I will not call because who cares? Yeah. Nobody. I ain't saying it. don't matter. It doesn't matter. No. But uh, and I, I wonder what happened to Christopher Columbus. I do. I, I, I sent him out of here with a folding knife and a how to speak Spanish textbook I'd had left over from one of my college years. Because he was still struggling with Spanish. And he had some really broken... It was conversational now, but he had no you know a good grammatical flow whatsoever and and we'd had long conversations about this and uh and i gave him this book you know and mm-hmm. i sent him out and two hundred dollars you know and he ended up in uh maybe el paso i don't know he called one time said he'd been mugged and somebody stole his book and uh yeah he cooked the ham and we worked our way from we have now worked our way from the volume of a PA to Christopher Columbus returning that's to right. the, to the new world. And we even got to John. Oh, and John. And that's okay. Yeah. What am I doing? We've, you know, words. They say I've got words. <laughs> you know, I have many words. Maybe I've just been wanting to talk. I don't know. I'm talking. That's um, it. So I was sitting at that bar I worked at one night in Oxford, Mississippi. Let's roll on that. And I uh, looked to my right, and here's this guy sitting beside me, who I knew of. It happened to be the guy that was doing the dance at Junior's. The strut. The strut. And he looked right over at me, to, and he says, You're Daniel Sharp. And I looked back at him, and I said, And you're John Graham. And then we immediately started having a beer and talking about mutual friends of all of which, you know, that was before social media when you go, so many mutual friends. Well, he and I had all of the mutual friends. We had all the mutual yeah. stores. He, he was from Decatur. Uh, we, we connected immediately in many ways. We're both artists, and he's like, I'm a painter, you know. Uh, I'm a musician. I know. I was like, I know. So, and we left there, and he's like, you want to go to my apartment, and I'll show you some of my work. And we literally walked off the square for a while to his apartment, and he showed me his work, and I was blown away by the quality of his work. And I've seen this good work. That's what brought us to this story. We we there was some hanging around here, uh, just a few pieces that I've got hanging. I have many pieces, but uh, there's a few of his that are that are displayed. And we got on a conversation about that. That's why we're talking about it now. And so he shows me his work, and we 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 talked about that, and that, and then we left there, and we walked to William Faulkner's grave, and. Uh, we we stuck around Faulkner's grave for a while, and we walked back. And I remember that night I had on a satin white shirt, and for some reason that night I'd went home and I and I dressed in my best most expensive clothing. I, I must have been wearing a thousand dollars worth of clothes that night. And uh, irrelevant to the story. And uh, we walked back across the square. We had a few more drinks. We walked all the way to the other side of the square, way down to my house, and uh, up into my house. And my roommate was there, dear friend of mine, who knew of John and knew John. And uh, he immediately 
ask for a commission uh, for John to do a portrait for him. Of, mm-hmm. And uh, John and I still talk about this today because he ain't never done it yet. And I remind him, I'm like, you owe our friend whose name I ain't going to say for whatever reason. You owe him that portrait. I'll tell, tell him like all the time. Like, not every time. But when we talk or get together, like I said, oh, yeah, don't forget, you still owe that portrait. And uh, Johnny Graham. So Johnny Graham um, moved to a new place out at uh, Taylor. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, ended up painting out there. And uh, he also worked, uh, he was in like maybe his last year at Ole Miss at that point. He did lots of... Uh, big works, lots of beautiful works. And I had the distinct pleasure of going to his studio and watching him paint. And uh, John always paints with music. And John Graham introduced me to Tom Waits. How about that? He introduced me to Tom Waits in his studio. Wow. And he also introduced me to painting with oil because you can't just sit around and watch. If you're an artist, you know, you got to try. So I did quite a bit of painting with him and I, I call it apprenticeship. He might laugh at that, whatever. I don't know. But he also lived here. Uh, he lived at this old stagecoach house. It's about five miles from here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we ran together and he, uh, taught me how to stretch canvas. He didn't believe in buying canvas. You would stretch your, to, to make a painting, you would take raw boards and cut your risers and you would put them together and then you would stretch the canvas on it properly and then you would gesso that. And I used to call it Jessup, and he'd always laugh. So Daniel said, put that Jessup on it. And uh, and he, his uh, his instructor at Ole Miss, who's, if I could say his name, everybody out there in Radio Land that knew about him would be like, oh, yeah, this guy's. <laughs> and he had taught John, you know, the, the, the way to do this. And, that you know, the essence of your painting starts with the board that's going to stretch the canvas. Mm-hmm. And John taught me to stretch canvas. And uh, we we had this wild idea of calling this thing called Blue Tick Canvas Company. And we stretched a whole bunch of canvases. And we worked. We got a table saw. And we stretched a bunch of canvas. And uh, and we're going to sell them, you know, and all this stuff. And now John, being the artist that he is, and you, you're not going to have any number of canvases sitting around without them getting painted on. And they, they ultimately, every single one of them got painted on <laughs> and sold, you know. Yeah. And uh, one time I was over there painting. And uh, I painted what I thought was something, you know, groovy. You know, it was a lot of blue. And uh, if I remember correctly, it was a a ninja, a blue ninja, seated. And it was coming out of the painting. And uh, and I came back a few days later, and the blue ninja was gone. And and somebody came in and tried to buy it one time. I'm saying they mistaked mine for his, but they're like, I got to have that. And I was like, no, 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 that ain't finished. And so I didn't sell it, whatever. And, uh, came in later, a few days later and, uh, it was gone. There was no blue ninja nowhere to be found, but I saw this, uh, mysterious painting that was all in blue tones and I got looking closely at it and I could still see my work in some of the places and John (laughs) had painted over it, had painted over it. And of course, obviously it was a hundred times better than anything I could ever dream of achieving. Um, and I was not upset at all, whatever. And, uh, he's like, yeah, I got a commission. And and uh, this one's gonna hang at this famous place, whatever. And it's a three thousand dollar commission, and I needed one, and I've got one now, and this is mm. much work. And he sold it, and whatever. So I I I got, 
I take pride in the fact that I have, in fact, sold the $3,000 painting, even though nobody knows that I put the blue base. I put the few little pieces of blue that exist on it. <laughs> um, but it, it's a joke. It was John's painting. But, I, yeah. but hey, I'm, I'm a professional. I'm a professional. I sold one. They, they sold one. As a matter of fact. He, he sold a bunch. Of, John sold a bunch of them. And uh, he still paints. He's still amazing. He does like he teaches. He he, he don't just paint. He teaches painting. He he's yeah. got a a hot lot going south of here. And we talk all the time. I want to open this up, and then uh, I want to take another break after this. But uh, let's talk about the Lost Boys. Oh, <laughs> I was in the Lost Boys, the original <laughs> movie from the eighties. So just to preface this is when uh daniel and i were first getting to know each other through uh facebook messenger correspondence was uh he sent me a shot of him in lost boys and then i went back and watched the movie and i was wow that is you (laughs) yeah in the opening scene of lost boys when they got that door song playing you know with the organ and stuff um you'll watch the opening scene as they're getting to california and uh, I watched the opening scene, and there's these kids in a shopping cart put, having fun and pushing each other around in a shopping cart and by a merry-go-round. And then right after that scene, for like a split second, like about a second, two seconds, you see me sitting on a bench uh, in the movie. So, I mean, how did, how did that happen? Where, well, where, where was the film filmed at, and how did all that connect? The best I can explain it is um, when I was in Mexico, I uh, went up on a hill to seek out this uh, a different expat, expat who I was, we were told where his hideout was. And my friends thought it'd be funny to send the only Spanish speaker up on the hill to find this guy. So I went up there. I walked up alone in the middle of deep, dark, deep, deep Mexico. I walked up this hill alone until I came to a campsite where there was a American playing chess with uh, a Latin American. And they didn't acknowledge me that I was even there. They just kept playing. So I quietly sat and waited and waited until the game was over. And then they look over and start speaking Spanish to me. And I started speaking as good as I could until finally they, they broke into a little bit of English. And, realized, and I, you know, we started talking English. <clears throat> well, I stayed at that campsite for an unknown amount of time with these people. Yeah. And I lost time. The, the guys said they were worried and they started to come looking for me because it was hours. Many hours. It was hours before I came off the hill. But for me, it was moments. Sure. It was moments. And in that, in that moment from that hilltop where I lost time, I time traveled into the movie The Lost Boys. <laughs> and that's the truth. I left my physical body. And maybe I took it with me. I don't know how I projected. I, I remotely projected from a mountain top in Mexico into the 1986 movie 
The Lost Boys. Interesting. And and I was in the movie. And that's the truth. I've never told anybody the truth of that. I just tell them I'm in The Lost Boys. But I know I was in The Lost Boys. I have the memory of it. I have the memory of being in the movie. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, uh, just before we break off, is... Uh... Uh, let's open up Mexico. I'd love to. Let's open her up. <laughs> so, I mean, like, what, why'd you, why'd you go, there? what was you looking for? How'd you go down there? Was you work or what? I mean. I'm going to briefly flip over this. I was going to get, I was going to go hike the Appalachian Trail and I was geared up for it. Yeah. I met someone, a native who was originally from, sort of, originally from Mexico. I was getting ready to hike and this person says to me, Hey, before you go hiking, you should go to Mexico. I need to go down to this little place where I'm from. And you seem adventurous. Why don't you? Why don't you and I go to Mexico? And it was about like that raft guy thing. And I'm like, let's roll. Sure, I'll go to Mexico. You didn't have to have no passport then. I mean, you didn't have to have nothing. Mm-hmm. And with someone from there, you really didn't have to have nothing. So we went through the smallest little place you can ever imagine to get in the country i'm not going to start ever naming any places i've been if i can in mexico but uh <clears throat> and we went down to this small um uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna call it a town let's call it a town uh it had two stores one of which was a normal one where you could get cold things and cokes and chips mm-hmm. the other one was a small room where you could get the finest food the world has ever seen. And you could also, they had a small cooler, you could get a Coke. And, uh, that was where I landed. And I immediately was introduced to the family that I lived with there and stayed there. And my friend immediately took off to somewhere else in Mexico. And so there I was. And, uh, and there I was. Yeah. I was 24 years old because I remember learning how to say Bente Cuatro. Mm -hmm. And I had long hair and long beard. And, uh, and I had all my hiking gear with me too, like even like my water filter and my Survey Optima mm-hmm. German cooking stove, and uh, so I like knew I could survive in nothing. I didn't have to. I mean, there's you didn't have to do that. There's plenty of everything, and uh, so I stayed in this one little. It was like these Adobe style homes. It was like there was there was a there was a there was a Mercado. I mean, there, it was a small. It was. <clears throat> stayed there in this one small place. There's like one church. There's a center of town. Uh, and uh, if you ventured out from that, you could catch a bus or walk to a little bit bigger town. Mm-hmm. If you ventured out from that, for another 10 miles, you get to a large town with an airport. When I went to that one one time. And I went to the medium-sized one a few times. Um, and... Uh, I got some leather work done at the medium size one, and I'd ask for a uh, holster for my poker gun. I didn't have it with me now. You know, I have nothing like that. But I went back to get that holster, and uh, the police were sitting out front. Mm. And it freaked me out a little bit, so I never retrieved that that poker gun leather holster um, that would have had an Oso on it. And... uh I had another story about that medium-sized town, and I didn't go back there. I was alone. I was 24. I've been speaking Spanish, but I stayed in that small place mostly. 
and I would hike out into the de- the desert. It was a dry area. Mm-hmm. I hike into the desert long, long hours. I would set like, and one time I got lost. I wasn't really lost, but you can get lost in the desert if you ain't never been there. I mean, you can get lost anywhere. Yeah, I don't care how good you are. You get lost in your house. But I knew if I kept the mountains on one side of me or behind me and I went a certain way, I could eventually get somewhere. And I kind of freaked out that one time when I got lost. Uh, I'd run out of water, too. And uh, I was very arrogant at that time. And uh, finally made my way. I saw this farmer way, way off. And he was plowing with a mule. Mm-hmm. And I woke up and I said the name of my village in a questioning way. And he pointed. He never said a word. He pointed. And I hiked, and I hiked, and I hiked, until finally I hit a road, and I hiked, until I got back to where I'm supposed to be. And I collapsed in my little, small little room that night. And I remember um, waking up like, it seemed like days later, I don't know, it was a long time, but it was, and and, uh, they were worried about me. And uh, I came out, and uh, they gave me a bowl of menudo. It was my first menudo ever. It was <laughs> nourishing, and I loved it. It was the same day that I tried cactus for the first time. Hmm. And that was my very first trip to Mexico, and all those uh, the other things I was telling you about came later. Uh, later, I took that that trip. I took my uh, C seventy one. Later, I took a seventy six Chevelle four door. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, with a kill switch, and uh, and I went with these. Uh, friends I'd made who were all in the Peace Corps and they spoke perfect Spanish and they you we became friends and we became friends and uh and we, we rolled down there in that 76 Chevelle and had many great adventures many times and went many places I drove that car over La Spina de Diablo the spine of the devil that's you go through Durango the state of Durango and go over the mountains to the sea and you will have driven over the spine of the devil I drove over the smile of the devil in that car. It was my day to drive. We switched them up. Every day someone drove. Every day someone was a co-pilot. Every day two people were sitting in the back. Yeah. And it became, I remember we got up that morning in uh, Concepcion. Now I'm telling. Uh, We got up that morning in one town and uh, it was my day to drive. And they said, Sharp, can you drive us over the smile of the devil? I remember I said, uh, I was born to drive us over the spine of the devil. Mm-hmm. And I drove that car like it had never been drove before. Yeah. Oh, and let me tell you what. Now that was, I don't know how it is now, but a long time ago, you know, you you drove like you got in with the traffic and you rode. Now that was a two lane, but when you got on some bigger stuff, like it was aggressive. It, oh yeah, it was aggressive. Latin American countries driving, like even in the cities, like I have a lot of experience in like Guatemala City and uh, Chile. It's uh, it's a lot different than American culture driving. It's very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Even if you're on a bike, like a bike will be aggressive toward a car, mm-hmm. which makes no sense to me, but it happens. I, I picked up a habit driving down there because you'll notice uh, people blow their horn a lot. Oh, yes, they do. They all, bump, bump, all the time. Everything. And what they're doing is, I figured it out. They're letting you know no, what they're where doing. They're at. Yeah. I'm coming, buddy. Yeah. Here's my horn. It's like I figured out what the horn was for. Yeah. Because around here, we use it to call cows, right? Yeah. 
But now, down, like, hey, there's Steve. Yeah, right, there's a horn. Now, down there, when you hear a horn blow, you, it's because somebody's going to pass you. So they want you to know that here's the vocal part of my growl. My car is coming. And I, and I, I'll, I, and I brought that home. And I'll, I, even inadvertently now, when I'm in traffic, sometimes I'll be doing that. Boop, boop. You know? I'm telling you, I, I'm with that too. And like, I have a friend who drives truck all across the United States, and he does this. And this. It's hilarious to me, not only because he's bigger than everything else on the road, but he was like, I put my blinker on, I let it ding three times. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, I'm coming over. Uh huh. And he comes. Yeah. You have one, two, three, here I come. And I'm with the, the Latin culture, with that. Yeah, it's very much. I, I, I love it. Machismo. Yeah, I was. We were in a, a bar in Durango, the city of Durango, and we were sitting out having some food and some beers, and uh, it was a cow. That's cowboy town. That's where narco music comes from, and that is a that is an actual term. Okay, and uh, was you a cowboy before you went down there, or is that where you've identified as cowboy? Uh, I was always a cowboy. <clears throat> now people are gonna. They're actual cowboys out there laughing right now. It's okay. Go ahead and laugh. No, we're I got about- a, I, my old saddles hanging up in my barn. Okay, I I team roped, I healed, I worked the de rig and shoot, and besides that, I I worked for over a decade with an actual herd of cows that required no horses. So we like to say my my cousin would always say, "No, I'm not a cowboy. I'm a cow man. I'm mm. a cattleman." And uh, now, as far as the boots and all that, like I, since I was a small child, I wore cowboy boots for my entire life. I have wore cowboy hats my whole life. I had a team rope and belt buckle when I was in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I was never a great team roper, whatever. I had a quarter horse. Her name was Babe. I roped off of the back of her on numerous, numerous occasions. I worked those cows. I carried buoy knives. I threw them. I can take a rope. And I can throw a rope, as they call it. Am I a cowboy? No. There's and, a mentality. It, it, I guess you could say. And it's there's a, a principle. I read every Louis L'Amour book that he ever wrote. Okay, cowboys. How many of y'all did that? That's all I'm saying. Y'all cowboy all you want, buddy. Yeah. But uh, and I, I'm, I'm I'm not taking away from y'all cowboys. No, you're not. And I'm never claiming. I never said I'm a cowboy. And so when you said, "Were you a cowboy?" I don't know. I mean, I. When I go play on the stage at bars for my entire life, I wear boots, cowboy boots, because that's that is my uniform. Mm-hmm. So I wear boots on stage. I wear boots when sh- when stuff gets serious. I put my put my boots on. That's right, shit kickers. And my boots ain't got no square heel, buddy. I got boots that go in a stirrup, if you know what I mean. And uh, I just don't put them in a stirrup anymore. It's been a long time since I rode a horse. Honestly, mm-hmm. a long time. So am I a cowboy without a horse? I guess. I, I don't know. Cowboy is also, it's a mentality. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a macho thing. It can be a macho thing. Uh, but I have friends that are current cowboys who actually work off of horses, mm-hmm. who actually rodeo the verb. Now, no, I'm not a hair on these guys. These guys are real. They are actually. But to the mentality. A bull rider that goes out there. And rides bulls. Okay, he's a cowboy. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? These guys are far more cowboy than me. But I'm I'm a cowboy to the extent that I, I had my experience. I, I grew up with horses. 
I took care of my horses. I still got my saddle, you know, for whatever that's worth. Um, and uh, I always, always wore boots. There's been a few times that I've wore uh, work boots or rubber boots to a gig, you know. I don't know why, but I did. Probably because I done busted out of my cowboy boots and I, I, I wear mine, mine get wore out quick. But uh, so Mexico reinforced my cowboy style because mm-hmm. I'll tell you what if you ain't never been like uh, that's the thing that is the custom that is the style of Mexico like there there is no higher um, style in Mexico than dressing vaquero mm-hmm. and uh, do any of these guys probably a lot of them still ride horses and do stuff but I don't know but but like a, and so whenever many times I've been down there I've, I've got a like I got a belt with a Los Animales on it, you know. That's the three animals, um, uh, and they make these. The, I don't know about now. They used to make these belts in a prison in South Mexico, and the only place you could get them was Mexico. And I had one of those belts. It's, I still got it somewhere. But uh, my hat that I used to wear all the time uh, came from. Uh, it ain't your white one, is it? That is that is a newer hat. That white hat you saw me in. It, no, it's from Mexico. Uh, but I bought it up here. Okay. But now I have my old my old hat from Mexico up up there in uh, in, my, in somewhere put away. Um, and I wore that hat for many years. I mean, it's it is raggedly worn, and it's the kind of hat that you can uh, put water in and drink out of. You know, um, when I got to Mexico, on many occasions I would buy a serape. I would go get some slacks. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't ever get any boots down there, even though I probably sh- should have. If I had some made or something, that would have been sweet. But uh, I had boots with me, and uh, honestly, a lot of times when I was in Mexico, I wore flip flops, sandals—not sandals, flip flops—because um, it was a lot of times it was hot. And so, and I ain't trying to pretend like I'm no cowboy in Mexico, whatever. But, but I would I would buy like a shirt and a couple of shirts and a serape. And when I would be moving around the cities and towns, and if you don't know this, there's many, like half the people got on flip-flops down there. Mm-hmm. You, you've been to Latin America. Uh, flip-flops, it's a thing. Yeah, it's, it's a thing. And uh, and my hat, my actual hat from there, I'd wear it back and forth. And I would I would blend, pretty much blend in, almost, almost blend in, which is what you want. Kind of you want. If you want the unique experience, you don't, you don't go do, make yourself look like something like, Mm-hmm. And then I and so I brought that style, if you will, want to call it style, back home with me, and it became sort of my, for a time, my, my style. And you kind of did the opposite because, like, when you're in, like, let's just say a hostile environment, even though it's not hostile, but you are someone who is planted there at the point. You don't want to draw any more attention to yourself. That's than right. Need be, but when you get back home, you flex on it. You flex them, cause, <laughs> yeah, because ain't no, you know, ain't nobody messing with you up here. Yeah, like you, you're, you're you already know the rules of the street. Yeah, and so, uh, oh, and th- if you ain't ever had a, a serape, I mean, th- as a functional garment, uh, it is superior to many many things. I mean, it'll keep the wind. Uh, La Tierra. I learned what, I learned what La Tierra was, mm-hmm. and it's a sandstorm that blows in. And the first time I saw a tumbleweed rolling down a street was in Mexico, and it was because. They said, La Tierra, Danielle. You're, my name is Danielle mm-hmm. in Latin America. And I say that up here and people think that's funny because it's a girl. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I don't care. 
Danielle. Play La Bamba, Danielle. That's what they'd say. <laughs> and uh, I played La Bamba many times down there. And they loved that. They were so fun. And so, like, I mean, while you were down there and you took multiple trips, I mean, like, what was your reasoning? Like, why Adventures. were you down there? You were just wander, down there to adventure? Wanderlust. Yeah. Straight up wanderlust. Yeah. Um, I, I, I still, to this day, dream of the horizon. There, the places I used to live alone, you know, I never had art up. There were maps. My art was maps of the world, maps of the country. I'd have pens in them. I'd do research on them. I, I, I want, my mind wants to wander. My body wants to go. I want to go all everywhere and see. I want to meet. For yourself. For, for my soul. For my enlightenment. For my fulfillment. For my destiny. You know, this is, I don't know why. Some people are like that, I guess. I'm that way. Uh, and that's why. You I know went, what I call it, though? I that? call it maps of meaning. And it's like, okay, yeah, you can literally hang a map on the wall and tell people where you've been. But I was like, no, it's not where I've been. It's what I've learned while I was there. And it helped me to better socialize in the world. Because that's what I hate about people who never travel, is you want to project all these things on people you've never met and people you'll never be in contact with and you have no idea about their way of life or how they do things or their you, clothing. That's right. You better be humble quick. Yeah, because the or moment... You get, or you get humbled quick. The moment you step out of your country or maybe even your state, if you are so bold, if maybe you Maybe your door. Yeah. For some people who have that code we talked about earlier. That's it. You bring that code uptown one time and it ain't... It's your code. You know? That's it. You got, you got to... Be flexible and compromise with human beings. But it's my map of meaning, and it like continually humbles me to a point to where I don't know everything. I will never know everything, and the best thing I can do is try to blend in and learn. That's right. You're right. And and when it's time, maybe I'll make a little noise. I made a little noise. That's for sure. Take a break. Let's take a break. News and notes. Thank you so much for listening to Porch Talk. If you haven't done so already, I would ask you would rate and review the show. On whatever podcast app it is that you listen to on, tell you, buddy. We have a YouTube. We're on the social medias. Just look Porch Talk up and you'll see that logo. You'll know where you are. Okay? This was three of four with Daniel. Here comes the final part. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.